Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodsick. This episode is with a new playwright, Jerome Vernich, who's written a brand new piece for Seattle Immersive Theater called The Listening Glass. The piece opens October 1st, runs through the entire month of October. Get more information and your tickets at seattleimmersivetheater.org. And this was a great interview. Uh, Jerome's background is more with video game design and writing for characters, and I was really fascinated about how he took that skill set and brought it over into the world of theater. So enjoy episode 46 with Jerome Vernich. Pleased to welcome to the podcast a brand spanking new playwright, <gasps> Jerome Vernich is here. Welcome, Jerome. Thank you very much, Katie. I appreciate it. So you're uh, about to open the Listening Glass with Seattle Immersive Theater. It's going to run all through October. Yes. Tell me where this began for you, because you're not a playwright, as a lot of the guests are. We're theater geeks or whatever, mm -hmm. but this is brand new territory for you. I want to play right now. It's going on my resume tomorrow morning. <laughs> Um, yeah, for me personally, it, uh, it started when I, last October when I saw, um, Seattle Immersive Theater's production of Superliminal and then subsequently Dump Site, um, and I immediately recognized the kind of work that I want to be doing. Um, and I knew that I, I wanted to be involved with them. I didn't know when that opportunity would come. They, uh, had an opening for an original work. Um, as part of their Catalyst series um, this upcoming October. And uh, Paul Thomas, the art artistic director, he hit me up in June, asked me for a short script and gave me a little little bit of a seed to work with, and I jumped at the chance and have not looked back. It's really exciting. And although you're not, you haven't written plays before, you do have some... Uh, your feet wet in creativity and writing for Pathfinder. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm a professional writer. I mean, that's my my, my deal. I write freelance um, for the role playing game industry. Um, so there are a lot of similar elements. It's fiction. Um, you're and in in a, I think I'm more qualified to write immersive theater than I would be to write a stage play because in immersive theater, as within role play, you have to assume that the audience may react in unexpected ways. You have to um, factor in their free will, you know, and, and allow that they may do something unexpected. They may open a drawer that you didn't intend to be open. They may peek behind a curtain that you intended to stay closed. And you have to be prepared for those things and, in fact, welcome those, um, those audience interactions. So that's, that's why I think that I'm such a good fit for Seattle Immersive. Can you talk a little bit more? Because this is fascinating to me, coming from the RPG industry and then translating that into a play like that's so exciting for me like I hope we pull more of more of y'all over from that but when you sit down when you sat down to write the script did you shift your thinking at all you know as as opposed to you would I'm not speaking really eloquently here but you sort of you're sort of picking up what I'm laying down sure. I mean what was that process when you're sitting down okay I have a script to write this is different but sort of similar to what I usually do well in in the role playing industry 
Um, there are a couple terms, and they, they probably exist in, in theater as well, um, but the idea of the sandbox, right? Where you're going to create okay. um, a play space, right? Where either the characters or the audience members can just roam around freely and engage with the space as they will, engage with, with each other freely. Um, so that's one thing that I brought over. And then the other thing is the idea of the NPC, the non-player character. If you've ever played a video game, um, they're the robots standing around that give you the quests, that tell you to right. go collect beaver pelts or whatever in the forest and bring them <laughs> back, or whatever it is. Um, and so in my mind, whereas I think... I, I, I rather assume, I don't know, but I assume that most... Um, playwrights think of the characters as the center of the work, right? Where I'm, I'm writing everything for them. Whereas I, I, I kind of thought of them as NPCs. Like, the real players are the audience members, and the characters are just sort of these... They're there to convey the story, they're there to direct the action, but they are not explicitly who I'm writing for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's... I'm just... You can't see me nodding, listeners, but it's She's really, doing it. It's really exciting to me. This is um, so. Tell me about the plot mm. of the play. So, the original seed for the play was an interrogation. That's what uh, Paul wanted me to write, and that's the first bit that I did. And then he started um, building out the rest of the space, which is a fully realized. Uh, floor of a police precinct. It's the uh, major crimes unit of this police precinct with holding cells. Um, you can uh, a working fingerprint station, mugshot station, um, incident room with all the whiteboards and all the evidence laid out everywhere. Handcuffs, two-way mirrors, the whole deal. Um, and. As that started to to get built out, that was sort of the uh, I, I saw the sandbox start to to come into to being, and so then I I took the original what I would say air quote play <laughs> right, um, and and it sort of became to, to spread its little amoeba fingers out through the rest of the space, and so then I started um, I guess choreographing actions um, that were meant to to happen. Throughout the space, which the audience may or may not witness, I have no idea. If some, if someone is standing right there to witness that conversation, then they will see that part of the the work. If they're somewhere getting their cells fingerprinted or taking a mugshot or whatever, then they will mi would miss that, and that's fine. You know, it's it's totally fine. Um, and so, did that answer your question? So it's there's a crime that's happened. So oh the shit! Plot the plot. Yes. Right. But I'm fascinated by everything you're saying. So that's. I got sidetracked. Right. So right. this young man gets called in as part of a murder investigation. Okay. Was the original idea, and the young man is a schizophrenic, and so uh. the idea of an interrogation is very difficult, right? Because he's got a lot of voices addressing him at all times, and so sussing out what is true and what the uh, detective wants to hear. Um, is is very difficult for him, and that's the basic plot. And as as the an audience member, you'll hear both what is occurring inside the interrogation room, but then you'll also hear the voices that the young man hears, and so all these false uh, false positives going on in his own mind. Oh wow! Um, and so it's it's I was inspired very much by um, the podcast Serial, right? This American Life, 
right? Yes. And Adnan. Sarah Koenig. Yes, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, that was fantastic to me, and it really um, ignited in my mind this idea of um, of confession and guilt and the quality of a confession. What does it mean to confess, and can you confess to something you didn't do? Um, it, it certainly seems possible, and and how do you evade uh, responsibility for something you did do? Um, and the guile required for that, and uh, that was just ripe, fertile, fertile soil for for uh, the dialogue that uh, that is coming out in the play. So, is the the choice to have the lead character be schizophrenic was that something given to you, or something that you came to? That's something that I brought in with me. Um, I have long been fascinated um, with that particular illness because I can scarcely fathom anything more terrible. Like, I have such sympathy for anyone afflicted with that condition. It, it honestly sounds hellish to me. I can't even imagine it. Well, I, I obviously right. I can. Um, but, um, but having to live with it is just terrible to me. And so... This was also conceived against the backdrop of, of um, a lot of sort of dubious interactions with police forces across the nation, and a lot of those coming back to an inability to communicate, an inability to understand, especially people with mental illnesses, and that's definitely at the heart of, of this play. And very timely. I mean, I don't know if you've seen just, just this week, there's a story breaking in New York, a woman who was misdiagnosed as... Uh, Bipolar and given just pumped up with lithium because the police couldn't understand, thought she was being aggressive and therefore mentally ill, and she was not at all. Yes. And yeah. so it timely stuff. Tell me about the cast and crew of this piece. Yeah. Well, um, as I mentioned, Paul Thomas is the art director. He's fantastic. Um, it's being directed by Bo Pritchard. Um, the uh, lead actors are Gary Taylor and Randall Scott Carpenter, is our young schizophrenic man. He is, they're both. Crazy talented. I'm excited to see them both. Amy Baldwin is doing all the costumes, and uh, Nick Abercrombie will be doing all the sound, and that is going to be spooky. I'm, I think it's going to be uh, haunting, certainly. Because that's a completely different experience for an audience member, right? We're used to sitting, sitting in an audience, and the sound cues come through the speakers, and we're more disconnected from that and this is getting inside one character's head oh yeah oh and we're gonna have everyone on earphones too yeah everyone's gonna have uh, wireless receivers that they plug onto their under their belts so you can walk around the space and still hear everything that's going on and the voices will be right there in your ears wherever you go you they will be inescapable as they are for the main character so what has been this experience for you after writing the thing writing the piece and then as opposed to seeing the final design of a, of a game, they're live people, and there's yeah. a set that's built out. Has it been sort of a playground for you? What I mean, what is this experience for you? You know, it's really fascinating because um, when, when you write something for a role-playing game, you create... Um, create a plot, and then you, you trust the game master, whoever's running the game, to drop their group in the middle of this plot and engage with it, 
right? And so you never really see the finished product. You never see the party actually finish their quest or to see, you know, the hero um, achieve their love interest or whatever it is. And here I'm, I'm seeing this thing, whole thing play out all the way to the end. And it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. Um, and, and we know in, in the role-playing industry, we know that we have to turn over our work to a game master, and they're going to see our work safely into the hands of, of the final audience member. But here I'm watching it all play out before me, you know, and I have to trust all of these incredibly talented people to do their jobs, which I have no doubt that they will do. Um, and so to actually see it come to its full fruition is, is a little bit odd. Have you been in the rehearsal room or asked to do rewrites at all? I have. Um, I mean, I think as with most writers, I could probably tinker to the end of time. And obviously that wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was very fortunate that uh, Bo Pritchard, the director, was um, as open uh, with his rehearsals uh, as he has been. Um, And Gary and Randall have been great. And I was very involved early on in the process, sort of fitting a language to... um, to their mouths, you know, and, and figuring out what felt natural for them. Um, and then once, once I had, I had, uh, it was deemed that I tinkered enough and they're like, all right, this is, this really is the final edit. You know, you need to get the hell out of here. And then I turned my attention to other things. So that's been great. What do you think audience members are going to get from this? Production. I mean, obviously, there's there's the mystery element, the immersive element, but in a perfect world, mm-hmm. what do they walk away with after seeing this production? I hope that they, like I did leaving Superliminal, are um, inspired by the potential of immersive theater and Seattle Immersive Theater as a company. Um, and, and their minds are open to the, the possibility of, um, of engaging with not only theater, but all sorts of art forms in, um, in new ways and in, in immersive and interactive, uh, methods. Um, I certainly hope that they, you know, it, it puts Seattle Immersive, on the map for future shows, because I know that uh, Paul Thomas has huge plans. That guy dreams big, and I do mean big, like megalomaniac supervillain <laughs> big, which is awesome, you know? And so I, I certainly hope that it um, it continues the momentum that Dumpsite um, generated. Where is the... Is it like Dumpsite where you don't know where the space is until you buy your tickets, or can you tell us approximately where... It's in Soto. Okay. It's in Soto. All right. Uh, I don't think I can tell you. No, that's great. That's enough. Yeah. That's enough. Uh, What is your writing process like? Do you sit down at the same time each day? Is it sort of when inspiration strikes? Where is it? You know, that's the biggest difference for me uh, from going from being an amateur writer to being a professional writer was you really can't afford to wait for inspiration. Um, which is tough, and it has been tough. Uh, and so, no, I, I, I sit down, when I, when I have a project, I sit down every day 
in the afternoon and I write whether I feel like it or not and sometimes it's just all crap that comes out and I delete and I force myself to put in another couple hours until something good comes out. Um, I think that's that's any professional, right? You just keep doing the work until you get it right because otherwise you don't get paid, right? <laughs> um, and then as far as the creative process, um, I, I have sort of like a little... In my mind, it's like a little beat-up shoebox full of, like, trinkets of little ideas that I picked up along the way. Like, I've, I've wanted to, to work with the idea of, of schizophrenia and really engage with that idea um, for a while now, for many years. And so this was uh, an opportunity to kind of pull one of the, the trinkets out of that box right. and, and sort of show everyone how cool it is, you know. Um, and then a, a lot of it is is letting the characters speak from themselves. You know, occasionally characters will say something that surprises me. I'll, I'll get in the flow on writing and writing and writing, and then I'll write something and I'll go back and read the line. I'm like, oh shit, that's not what not what I intended at all. That kind of throws a little kink in my my outline, which is a good problem to have. You know, you want the characters to have their own life, um, and that's what what you're really looking for. Um, and so a lot of times, if I get stuck, I'll just keep throwing words at the same line even if it's a five word line I'll try different five combinations of words a hundred times over until one finally rings and then I'll move forward that's great do you is it do you have a um, special desk or space in your home or do you like to be out in the world I don't I'm a nomad alright I'm a nomad in general I am seen in coffee shops throughout <laughs> the city soaking up that Wi-Fi. there you go uh where did this love of writing come from for you? Was there a moment in your youth where you had a teacher encourage you? Or have you always been hearing characters and trying to bring them to life? I have... I have I'm a dabbler. Mm-hmm. I've dabbled in pretty much what there is to dabble in. Um, I taught professional dance for a while. I uh, did a lot of traveling I you know play music and and at the end of the day um, I just can't stop talking <laughs> I just can't stop talking and uh, I think everyone around me appreciates it if I do it to my laptop you know in, instead of just like stream of conscious babbling at you like I am now you know? <laughs> um, and so I I have a great love of words um, as somebody said they're what separates us from the beasts right and uh, and they're still the most powerful tool we have, I think, to to send ideas. Maybe not feelings, but certainly ideas. Um, and I wish I could sing, but I can't, and so I'm a writer. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I won't make you sing. I oh, won't. thank God. That I won't. I won't. I mean, like Kirsten Delore Helen was on here, and she's an amazing singer, and she sang without prompting, but... And gesticulating quite wildly, as I as I heard. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so when you sit down to create a character, mm-hmm. what's the first? What's the spark? What's the seed? What's the process for you? Sometimes I start with templates of people that I know or met. Um, I think as as everyone does, I probably create little lives for people on the bus, you know? Oh, sure. And I'll, I'll see somebody, and I'll, I'll find one little indicator, their purse or their shoes or 
whatever, how they, how they hold themselves, and I'll take that and I'll just extrapolate an entire life for them, right? And um, I think that's good practice. Um, a lot of times I, I take one central characteristic and I'll build on it, and that's, that's a lot from, from role-playing games. Like you have, um, th- there's certain tropes, the lusty barmaid, the grizzled bartender, the town tycoon, and all of these things, you know? And um, sometimes I'll start with a basic template and sort of um, and and add features onto it. Um, I use a I use a lot of different styles, but I would say probably stealing from real real people is probably the method I use most. What writers inspire you? Like who's in your library? You know, it's interesting because the writers I admire most are the ones most dissimilar from my own writing style. Um, I really like the really wordy writers. I'm a big uh, David Foster Wallace fan. A movie was recently made about him, right. uh, End of the Tour. And uh, Fitzgerald. Um, and so very, very florid writers. And But while, while I personally am a little more Spartan, um, I like to really get to the essential information um, and then gussy it up um, to make it sound believable. Um, yeah, I would say DFW is probably my, my main Go-to? Yeah. Do you find... So you talked about two authors that are mainly prose. Mm-hmm. Do you find any inspiration from poetry or other plays? You know, a lot of good writing is being done in television right now. That's because a lot of playwrights are doing the writing for television. There you go. That's it. Uh, I mean, I, 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 so much of um, what's good on TV right now is is based on just really strong writing. I mean, if you look at True Detective or House of Cards or whatever, there's I could name a million, but right. I don't know how I feel about it. But I think that's where a lot of the better writing is is getting done these days and some of some very good acting as well um do you have an opinion about that do i have an opinion sure. of, oh um i think it's interesting i've been reading um there's a playwright named sarah rule uh, who's okay. been nominated for the pulitzer a couple of times and she released in the in the last year or so a book of essays called 100 essays i don't have the time to write and they're all very short. I recommend it to um, everyone who's listening. Uh, and they're uh, a paragraph to three or four pages in length. Sure. And um, I think the first the first quarter of the book is about playwriting, and then uh, there's one on acting in plays, being an audience member, and I forget what the last quarter is, but there's one essay in which she talks about how... If you're a novelist and you win the Pulitzer, they hope you write more novels. And if you're a poet and you win the Pulitzer, you're going to write more poetry. But if you're a playwright and you win the Pulitzer, then you get to write for HBO or you get to write for film. Like, right. that's that's the ascension instead of go write more great plays. Hmm. And so I... I love those those shows where where you get um, the talent of playwrights, you know, writing that dialogue, and that I think that is why audiences connect to those pieces sure. so much because the characters it's just elevated the dialogue because it's coming from um, not someone and not no disrespect to. 
people who started out just as TV writers and are continuing to deepen their craft. But, uh, I mean, I have such respect for playwrights and everything that they do. And I'm glad that those characters are as strong as they are, but there's part of me that still hopes that the playwright is, is having the time to write plays and not sure. just in the television room. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and there's, that's one thing that, that I really am enjoying about Seattle Immersive is that, I mean, people are right there. The audience is right there. You sometimes have to move them bodily out of your way <laughs> if you want to get somewhere. Like, yo, I'm trying to get to my next right. scene here, you know, get out of the way. And there's something so human about, like, literally physically contacting people and people talk about embodying the character. That I, I'm not an actor, but I can imagine that that must go a long way toward that. You know, you 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 have no choice but to embody the character because this this person is is expecting that from you, even when you're you're silent. You know, and and when even when you don't think anyone else is looking. Um, and as a writer, too, like, assuming that the audience will overturn every stone, look on the backside of every paper, is, it's kind of thrilling, you know? It, it, uh, it prompts me to, um, to fill out the space uh, in, in ways that I hadn't previously imagined. When you talked before about audiences leaving a, a performance at Seattle Immersive Theater and, and thinking more about the different possibilities of what performance can be and, and engaging with it, what, I mean, projecting to the future, like what, what other kinds of shows would you want to see that are sort of maybe more of an intersection even of video games and theater? Like oh, what I'd could love you to imagine? See, what could I imagine? I, I would love to see a show, uh, loosely using that phrase, where there was only a dozen people that would ever experience the work and the work was designed to interact with their lives. Like, so where you would, say, oh. stalk somebody for a month and figure out what their habits are, where they work, where they eat, and all this stuff. And then you would embed play, again, loosely used, uh, throughout their life, their everyday lifestyle. So they would never know where they would encounter the work. And pe I mean, this is, this is not unheard of, you know, there's right. lots of guerrilla type stuff. Um, but to really start with the specific audience members as the starting point, right? Um, I think giving audience members more and more agency, like you're not allowed to leave this play until you find the silver key. And if you don't find a silver key, we're not letting you out of the theater. Like, you, you're locked in the theater, and you can't get out unless you find this key, metaphorically speaking, right. or literally. But that idea of, of prompting more and more engagement, because look, like, have you played video games recently? No. When, when, I, when I was a kid, yeah. I would play my, this is... A shout out to my my best friend growing up. Uh, we would play Wolfenstein. Oh yeah, shooting Nazis. But we, would, but we would the way that we would do it 
is she would be, um, it was on, you know, a keyboard, actually, like sure. on a computer, and she would be maneuvering and jumping, and then I was just shooting. Like, and so there was two of us, but we were playing the game at the same time. But that, I mean, I, my, my friend's daughter plays uh, Legend of Zelda, and so sometimes I'll, I'll watch her play the game. Sure. But that, so, so no, not really. No, not okay, really. Okay, all right, I got you. Well, if, if, you, if you look at, at the progression of, of video games over the past even decade, um, there's a reason that, that people drop out of college to play video games. You know, there's a reason that people have addictions to video games. It's because it's enthralling. It's engaging. It's immersive. And that's, I think, what... Uh, to a certain extent, the traditional arts are competing with, right? Absolutely. And also, I think, can learn from. And I think that that's what... Um, that's one thing that I brought in from the gaming industry, was if you give people an objective, they will bring their own ingenuity to the experience, which I think some traditional arts don't give the audience credit for. Um, and perhaps, you know, in, in, in days gone by, that was rightly the case because, you know, you can't hand someone a, a script if they don't know how to read, right? But I mean, these days, the information is very widely spread and it's easy, and especially with smartphones, it's easy to f- people figure out problems on the fly instantly. Um, so I think problem solving for the audience is going to be a big growth area, and also um, further embedding theater in, in the real world until it becomes sort of indistinguishable. Play, um, the idea of play growing larger and larger and larger, and that concept growing wider, and, and sort of the, the margin disappearing um, a little more. Now that you've written your first play, yes, where do you want to go to next in your playwriting? What what other characters or stories are rattling around in that little box of oh, treasures? I, you know, I got a few plot lines that I would love to see realized. Um, I, I still haven't figured out an outlet for them, graphic novels or maybe short film or something like that. Um, I'm a big sucker for the horror genre. Okay. I would love to do a proper... Uh, horror piece. I'd love to do um, a really good haunted house. I'm a ghost tour guide. It's like my day job. Okay. And so I, I, I spend a lot of time lurking around haunted places and ghost hunting <laughs> and like, it, you know, talking with people about um, their haunted houses and so on. I'd, I'd love to do something with that. Um, of course, it, it gets into very, very creepy territory because the most immersive thing you could do would be to like fill a house with actual ghosts, which I think, there was a movie about that, wasn't there? Maybe. 13 Ghosts? Maybe. It's, we have to dig into this, because I, I have never been in a haunted house. Uh, actual or like a haunted attraction? Haunted attraction. Like, oh, okay. I am petrified. And so, you need to convince, uh, what is this, what is the attraction to horror for you? Like, maybe explain it. Maybe convert me to going to see a haunted attraction. So, fear is one of the 
base emotions, mm -hmm. right? And we try so hard to sterilize our lives Absolutely. from experiencing that. Um, I don't think that it's necessary that you walk around being frightened all the time. I think that experiencing it sometimes is probably completely natural and and good. I mean, that we used to live in a world where being eaten by wolves was totally a thing. You could get eaten by wolves. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't careful. Or a stingray or a bear or whatever. So I think that having that shot of adrenaline is is something very human. Also, I think that, um, that look, like our minds... Uh, can go all sorts of places, not always places we want to go. I mean, who hasn't had a nightmare, you know, and woken up uh, wondering if there was a message buried in, in there somewhere, just like any dream, you know, and you wake up and you want to know, uh, what, what the hell was that about? Um, and, but if, if we shy away from those, we may never learn those lessons. And I think there's also a cathartic element to horror, you know? I mean, there, there's there's a... A reason why at the end of every slasher flick, right, um, the, the, the monster is vanquished or perhaps just laid to rest until the next sequel, you know, and then everyone can leave the theater feeling good because we've collectively vanquished this monster and we can all go about having our, our, uh, our happy day. So um, I find uh, fear integral to the... the the human experience and the fact that we avoid it so uh, strongly uh, makes me suspicious, frankly, of what we're trying to do here or what we're trying to convince ourselves of. What are some of your favorite horror films? Oh, now you're in my territory. <laughs> uh, I mean, th there's there's the classics. There's The Exorcist. My personal favorite is The Shining. Um, there's been some, I mean... Great Descent into Madness tale. That's one of my favorite uh, favorite themes, Descent into Madness, which obviously Listening Glass touches on. Um, right. And then recently, um, The Babadook was one of my favorites. I was just talking on the bus with my friend my friend Ada about that uh, movie just yesterday. You know what I think makes The Babadook so brilliant? Is The Kid. Remember The Kid? He's so I, annoying. I haven't seen it yet, Oh! Oh! But she was talking... She was... Uh, speaking very highly of the film. Okay. Well, and I got the sort of the broad strokes of right. it. Right. Spoiler alert. Uh, it's a you can't you can't turn your you can't turn the, the volume down, so you're stuck with the spoiler now. But um, the 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 entire premise is that this um, dark entity, like a demon or whatever, is trying to infest this single mom and get her to kill her kid, which is another classic possession horror movie. Conceit. And um, what makes it so brilliant and what made The Shining so brilliant is that the kid is it's really annoying. He is so annoying. Just like uh, Shelley Long? Duval? Yeah. Long? Wait, which one? I, that, I'm asking you. About? The one in The Shining. Oh. Opposite Jack Nicholson. Mm. Shelley. Shelley was really annoying in that Shelley. movie. Shelley. Okay. Yeah. Shelley. All right. Um, and one of the things that makes, makes The Shining so brilliant is that she grates on the audience's nerves so much as you can kind of understand where Jack Torrance is coming from. And that's the brilliance of it, is that we all have that inside of us. We, we all have that madman sort of lurking in there, waiting for just the right circumstances, like, oh, we're trapped on the top of a Himalayan mountain, and there's nobody coming to rescue us. Now's the time, right? We all get that inside of us, and so we can sympathize with somebody wanting to, like, you know... No. 
I want to talk a little bit about, I've been interested a little bit about uh, writings, writings, articles that I've read about uh, strong female leads in horror Mm -hmm. and how perhaps that's more possible in that genre. Mm. What's your take on that? It Follows was, I think, one of the better movies recently, um, along with American Mary, have strong female leads. I think that um, one of the great things about horror is that it works so hard to subvert our expectations um, while simultaneously sort of nodding and winking at them. I think there's a lot of uh, works recently that do that. Um, Horror movies want to play on your vulnerabilities, right? They want to make you feel vulnerable, and who traditionally is more vulnerable than the cheerleader in her short skirt with her head bobbling around weightlessly on her shoulders, you know, running around and screaming and running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door, etc. Um, and so I think that uh, ha- having made all those movies, right, that now directors who grew up on those movies are saying, oh, wait a minute, what if, what if she's the badass who vanquishes the monster. It makes perfect sense. She's in the perfect position to do it. And it really highlights how misguided the monster is. Oh, you thought this was, you thought she was weak. Well, she's not, right? Um, and so I think the fact that, that women have traditionally been victims in horror movies makes them the perfect candidates to subvert that norm. And I would love to see, I would love to see I mean, there's been a lot about, in Hollywood especially, um, how that industry treats aging actresses and mm. the role of, of women in Hollywood. Um, I look forward to, to it equalizing more and more. I think people want to see those stories, and I think the recent success of, of um, female-led uh, films really highlights that. Where do you stand on American Horror Story series? It's not my cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I like that people like it. Well, that's, I mean, normally I don't go out for horror films. And I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily traditionally in the horror genre. I mean, it's horror in the title, but mm-hmm. I'm okay watching it. Like, I don't, I don't go to bed with nightmares. But... What strikes me about that series is that, you know, you have Kathy Bates, you have Jessica Lange, you have these amazing actresses who mm. possibly would have aged out of traditional Hollywood roles, and they're they're killing it literally and figuratively. Um, and I think maybe that's why people are really drawn, th- that series has such a passionate following, um, which sort of speaks to the point that you were making. I think that's a very astute observation. And, you know... Film, for for a long time, has been very stilted, um, and people people are yearning for those stories. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, who doesn't love them? Some Kathy Bates, she is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, Kathy Bates. Big shout out, Kathy, Big if you're ca- listening. Yeah, if Kathy Bates is listening <laughs> to this podcast, we can we can only hope. Um, so. 
The Listening Glass opens mm. October 1st, runs through the 30th at an undisclosed location in Soto, which you will find out once you buy your tickets. Buy your tickets. By visiting seattleimmersivetheater.org. This has been a pleasure, Jerome. Thanks for coming on Thank the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Appreciate it.